Genesis chapter 47. You remember last week as we were looking at chapter 46 and uh, Joseph and his brothers have come into the land and he's gone out to greet them along with his father and, and he told them, listen, uh, when Pharaoh asks you what your occupation is, don't be afraid to tell them the truth. Tell them you're shepherds because they hate shepherds around here. Now that would seem like a really weird thing uh, to coach someone to say. Except that Joseph, in bringing his family, being used by God to bring his family into Egypt, he's wanting to accomplish two things. Joseph never takes his eyes off in this whole thing. He's trying to do something that's physically right for his family, but he knows that God has a call on his family, a call on that bloodline, to bring the Messiah, to bring the Savior of the world uh, into the world through that bloodline. So he wants to bring his family into Egypt so that they physically survive uh, the seven-year famine that's going on in Egypt and Canaan and the Middle East at that time. But he also recognizes, having lived uh, some very formative years in Egypt, that Egypt is a very sinful place that it is a very dangerous place to God's call upon his family, and that there's a very real danger that they could come into Egypt, get sucked into all the things that the Egyptians were about, be absorbed by the culture, be absorbed racially uh, by the Gentile nation, and then God's plan of salvation through them is essentially lost also. So he is looking now for a way to provide for them physically, but protect them in God's plan in their life. So he's not taking any chances. He hasn't been around them a lot. He knows what they were in the old days and how they treated him. So he said, in essence, I think, listen, we're, you're going you're gonna to stand before Pharaoh one of these days. And uh, when you stand in front of him, he's going to probably ask you what your occupation is. That's, that's the kind of questions uh, he, he's going to ask. And don't come up with some lie. <laughs> you know, don't try and uh, improve on it. You're a shepherd. It's humble. It doesn't seem to be anything to brag about. You, you're supposed to have the land of Canaan, but God hasn't given it to you yet. You're just wandering around as strangers and pilgrims in the world. Doesn't look like much on the resume. You're going to be intimidated by the august environment that you're going to be in. But stick with the truth. Tell them who and what you are. And Joseph knows that's going to land them out in the land of Goshen, where he'll be provided for and protected from being absorbed. Here's one of the dangers about lying. One of the dangers about lying is it moves me out of God's will automatically. If I go into any situation and I lie about who and what I am, and I get moved into a circumstance by virtue of that lie, uh, now I'm out of the will of God. Because God does not use lies to move us along. No, no person who lies to get someplace can ever be confident that they are the, in there 
in the will of God. So as we go into the environment of standing before Pharaoh or who the equivalent would be in this day, we just tell the truth, knowing that God is working behind the scenes. He will do whatever He wants to do with that to land us where it is that He wants to uh, land us. And so stay away from the lying. He just encourages them. Tell them the truth. And, and trust me, it'll work good in this situation. And so then Joseph, you said he's never going to finish tonight. That, uh, he's, there's no way. I rebuke the unbelief in this room. But you may be right. So we'll hold on. And so then Joseph went out and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. So he informs Pharaoh the arrival of his family. And then he took five men uh, among his brothers, and so five out of the eleven, and presented them to Pharaoh. Now, we don't really know why uh, he didn't bring all, all of them in, all eleven, uh, but he brought the five in. Uh, five seems to be some kind of a significant number, a mystery to us, but a significant number to uh, the uh, Egyptians. Remember when uh, Joseph was showing favor to Benjamin, he gave him at that meal a portion that was five times greater than his brother's. When he gave them gifts of clothing before they went back the second time, then to bring their father back, he gave uh, Benjamin five changes of clothing. So some, th somehow there's a significance that uh, hasn't carried down through the ages for us to know. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? Well, you know, I'm the CEO of uh, uh, IBM. Uh, so some kind of thing like that. He says, what's your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. This is our condition. It is severe. We need you to sustain us. And if you're taking requests, we'd like to stay in the land of Goshen, which was a very, very nice uh, part of kind of the uh, Nile Delta, uh, really could sustain even uh, seven years of, of drought. So that's what they request. And Pharaoh spoke to Joseph saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, you may make them chief herdsmen uh, over my livestock. And so uh, Joseph or, or Pharaoh uh, extends the invitation. They can have that. And just as Joseph had hoped would happen for provision, for protection uh, in, in the land of Goshen, it occurs. And then Joseph brought in his father Jacob. And Jacob's 130 years old at this point in time. He, he's got to be really cute <laughs> at this point. So he's brought in because of his actions here in a moment. He brings his father Jacob, set him before Pharaoh. And what does Jacob do? He goes up and he blesses Pharaoh. Now everybody knows in the ancient world that the greater, the, the greater blesses the lesser. So now, Joseph is in the middle of an environment that if you had a $200 million budget to make a movie, just to give the illusion of the majesty, you don't have to produce it. 
You can't believe what he is in the middle of with Pharaoh here, the palaces, all of the people all around, all of the servants, all of the pomp and circumstance and everything. And Jacob isn't impressed with money. He's not impressed with title. He's not impressed with marble. He's not impressed with ivory. He's not impressed with anything. And he goes up to Pharaoh and he pronounces a blessing upon him. Now, without a doubt, one of the things that he is expressing in his blessing over Pharaoh is to express his thanksgiving for how good Pharaoh has been to his son. The treatment of his son by his brothers and yet for all of the hardship that Joseph went through, he comes into Egypt and here Pharaoh has kind of put this much trust in his son, given him an opportunity to uh, impact world history really uh, on, on God's behalf. And so uh, I think that he expresses his thanksgiving there. Uh, in, in all of that. But additionally, uh, Jacob is very well aware that in him and in his seed, all of the world is to be blessed. And uh, speaking specifically of the Messiah, so he blesses him. I think it's important for us to realize as Christians um, that no matter how humble we are, no matter how humble our background, no matter how uh, you know, little we may be in terms of education and power and experience and all and some of the intimidating environments uh, that we can be placed in in the world, that we carry something into that environment that unless a child of God that is a Christian carries it into that environment, it doesn't come into that environment. And that's peace. That's peace. Jesus spoke of the fact that he said, listen, he sent the disciples out and he said, when you go into a particular house or a particular place and all, if the place is worthy of your peace, let your peace rest upon it. And if it doesn't, then don't let it. We bring a peace. We bring a, a sense of the presence of, of God and, because he is present in us and the environments that we uh, go uh, into. And uh, so that's, that's the blessing that we bring into situations too. And so uh, he gets done blessing Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you've got to give him credit. He's very, very gracious. He's not offended by what's just happened here. And he said to Jacob, how old are you? As he looks at him, he probably, you know, no cosmetic surgery in those days or uh, any kind of things, even for men and stuff like that. So he says, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years I'm 30, 130 years old. And then he describes it. Few and evil have been the, uh, the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. And uh, so he speaks of his days being few uh, in comparison to his grandfather Abraham who lived to 175 in comparison to his father Isaac who lived uh, to 180. Now when he says that his, the days of his life have been evil, it doesn't mean that he's been uh, you know, uh, consciously a notorious sinner or anything like that. The word evil means to break literally or to break in pieces. He's saying my life has been hard. <laughs> It hasn't been an easy life. 130 years. You think, oh, that's great. <laughs> Trust me, every, just about every day of it has been really, really uh, hard. My life hasn't been an easy one. And you think about it. He's uh, unfavored by, by his father, Isaac, who loved Esau uh, more than him. Hated by his brother, Esau. 
for 20 years, he's forced to live away uh, from uh, from home, doesn't get to see his mother die, and, and he's subjected to a man by the name of Laban who changes his wages 20 times in the course of 20 years, ribbing him off every way that he can. He has a hip pulled out of joint by God. He has a daughter named Dinah who gets raped. He has a village full of innocent uh, Shechemites who are killed by two of his sons. His wife, Rachel, dies in childbirth. The love of his life, Rachel, he lives for 20 years of his life wrongly thinking that his favorite son Joseph is dead. That's a lot of hardship for one life. That's just hitting the mountaintop experiences of, of things. So that's how he describes his life and he sees it. And so Jacob blessed Pharaoh and he went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, and the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had commanded. And then Joseph provided his brother, his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number of their families. Now this is, I like this about Joseph. He's, he's looking out for him. And, uh, but he's, he's got this internal integrity and, and, uh, and just a conscience that he's, he's not going to play favorites on this food thing. He, he has a responsibility to keep fed this, this whole uh, nation of Egypt through this famine. And he could have come in and said, all right, you guys, listen, everybody else is going to live on scraps and everything, but my family over here, I'm going to give them a triple, a quadruple ration of what that number of people ought to get. And he doesn't do it. He looks at how many of them there are, and he figures out what they ought to have, and he gives that to them. That's tremendous, really. Uh, that, that's, that'll get you respected as, as a leader. No favoritism or respect of persons. Now, there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph bought, brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And so when the money failed uh, of the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why shall we, should we die in your presence, for the money has failed? So the next year, the famine's so great, everybody takes, you start to figure out, food becomes more valuable than everything at a point in a, in a famine situation. So they bring all of their money to, bring all of the, to buy all of the food that they can buy. And in that next year, they bring all of the money of Egypt to them to buy grain. And uh, so here is Joseph. He's collected all of the money of the land into the coffers of, of Egypt. And, and he sells them the grain so that the nation and surrounding nations, Canaan, uh, they have grain for an additional year. And then Joseph said, give me your livestock. So they come at the end of that year and... And now you've got all of our money now. How, what can we give you to get grain for another year? And Joseph said, give me your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. And so they brought all of their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the uh, herds, and for the donkeys. And thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. So the following year, everybody brings their livestock in order to get grain. Then when that year 
had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from the Lord that all of our money is gone. My Lord has our flocks, uh, the herds of livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and the land we own. And why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for bread? And we in our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. And so the next year they look and they say, we don't have anything to offer you now but ourselves and the land that we own. And so Joseph now dispenses grain as people bring their land uh, to him. And then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them, and so the land became Pharaoh's. Now you can sometimes read or, or hear people be critical of Joseph in this situation. and say, look at what he did. He was a part of a thing that, that uh, took all of the wealth of the land and, and consolidated it and, and, and made it government property. Nonsense. To me, that's nonsense. It's nonsense, not even to me, but anyway... What, to me, what Joseph does here is absolutely brilliant. Because if he does not make it cost people something to get something, they're out of grain in two years. When a person has to buy something, when a person has to sacrifice and give up something in order to have that, you treat that resource as something super, super valuable. You're not going to waste it. And it was a, a really a brilliant, God-given way to extend those resources through the seven years. Sure, nobody, you know, likes maybe how, you know, the concentration of power as a result of it, but it couldn't be any other way and have people escape the, the seven years uh, with, their, with their life. I, I think it's just uh, tremendous how he handled it. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. So the concentration of the population now into the cities, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them because they did not sell their lands. And so the priests, the Egyptian priests, they didn't have to give up their land. They were taken care of. Uh, uh, by the rations. And so they, they're the only group in Israel that got to hold on to their land. And then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. And look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. There's still a couple of years left in, this, uh, in, in all of this famine. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth, 20% of what you, you raise, even in the, in the midst of this famine, 20% goes to Pharaoh, 80% shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food and for those of your households and as food for your little ones. And so look at how they respond to that. Yeah, I tell you, this is highway robbery. What are you trying to do to No, they said, you've saved our lives. And let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. They recognize that Joseph is being fair with everyone. Everyone's getting treated the same way. And they also recognize <clears throat> that Joseph, in, Joseph has them. He has all their land. He has all their money. He has them. He has all of their livestock. He can do anything he wants to them now. 
He could say, I'm going to give you seed and I want you to work all year long for some kind of pitiful harvest that you might get in the remainder of, of this drought and all. And, and, and we want 80% of it. You get to keep 20%. Or we want 70% of it or 50% of it, which was not unheard of in terms of taxation in those days. That he would take, while he, he holds all of the power, he still is as generous and gracious as you could be in that situation. You take 80, just bring 20 back on, on, uh, on this is, is a part of, of the storage. And they recognized this and, uh, and, and they respected him uh, greatly. No complaint, just pure appreciation from him uh, in, in all of this. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become uh, Pharaoh's. And so, uh, beautiful handling uh, of, of the situation. And uh, Joseph, uh, as he makes it uh, a law in the land of Egypt to this day, that is to the time of the writing of the book of Genesis uh, by Moses. And so Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt and uh, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and they grew, and they multiplied exceedingly. And so they're prospering in the middle of all of this <clears throat> because of how God was working through Joseph. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, and so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. And so that's 130 to 147 while he was living there in Egypt. And when the time drew near that Israel, and you know those two words, must die. There's a truth about everybody, barring the rapture. So it t comes near, he must die. And so he called his son Joseph and he said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, Please put your hand under my thigh, which was a, a symbol of a solemn oath. We already saw that related to Abraham and his, his servant. And deal kindly and truly with me. And here's, here's the promise that, that uh, uh, Jacob or Israel wants his son Joseph to make. Please don't bury me in Egypt. Don't put me in one of those pyramids. I was thinking that, but um, he had a better place to get buried. And he said, but let me lie with my fathers and you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Don't leave me. Don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me back in the land of Canaan. And Joseph gave his word to him and he said, I will do as uh, you have uh, said. And then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And so Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. And so as, as, as Joseph makes the promise, it's like he, uh, Jacob, he bows, acknowledging God, thank you God for, you know, uh, for this vow, and then an expression of appreciation toward Joseph for uh, being willing to take on uh, that, that responsibility. And then chapter 48, it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, indeed your father is sick. Now he knows his father is very old, but now he's, when, when your father is that elderly and you hear, listen, he's very sick, you know, you know that anything could kind of take a person uh, into glory at that point. And so he, he went to see his father 
And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh the oldest and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. So he's very elderly. He's bedridden now at this point. Joseph is coming. He uses this very finite strength to sit up and and, uh, accomplish what he knows he's supposed to accomplish here. Joseph brings Manasseh and Ephraim uh, to uh, Jacob for the purpose, and, and Jacob understands this, for the purpose that, that Jacob would lay hands on his grandsons and that he would bless them, pronounce a blessing uh, upon them as the patriarch of the family. And then Jacob said to Joseph as he comes with, with the sons, remember the boys, don't, don't view uh, two seven-year-olds. Uh, they're in their 20s now uh, in, in terms of, of their size and, and age. So Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, speaking of Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as a possession. So he's, he's recounting the most important things that happened to him in his life. And the most important thing that happened to him was when God initially came to him and gave him uh, these, uh, these promises. It's amazing what becomes more and more important the older, older you get. And, I, and uh, on a deathbed, I'm sure, what is most important for a spiritual person rises to the top and and here it is and he said and now your two sons Ephraim and Manasseh who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt they are mine Reuben and Simeon as Reuben and Simeon they shall be mine so Jacob informs Joseph the two boys that you have they're mine Uh, I ought to view them as grandsons, but I'm not going to view them as grandsons. I'm going to view them as my sons. They will be as one of the twelve, each one of them. So, so he gives them that kind of a stature. One of the reasons that he's doing it is Jacob wants to give Joseph a double portion because of who he is and how God has used him to give him the blessing of the birthright and the blessing of the birthright. And so to give him that position, the person that had the birthright would receive a double blessing. And so he says, I'm going to give you the double blessing by adopting both of your sons right into uh, the twelve so that uh, later on when they go into the land of, uh, of Israel uh, under Joshua both Ephraim and Manasseh receive a portion of, of the land and so this is, this is what he's, uh, he's doing here he's giving them that, that kind of status now this is why it's uh, important or at least interesting when you read through the genealogies of the twelve tribes of Israel through the Old Testament and the New Testament it's interesting sometimes they're different Sometimes in one list there's a, a certain tribe is mentioned and, and is missing. And then in another list another tribe is, is missing from uh, that list. Some of the lists of the twelve they'll include Joseph and Levi. And then there'll be other lists that eliminate uh, uh, Levi and Joseph altogether. And they'll talk about Ephraim and Manasseh. And you say, well where did Ephraim and Manasseh come from? This is where they came from. Uh, because of the status now that uh, that uh, uh, Jacob kind of uh, bestows uh, upon them. And your offspring, whom you beget after them, 
Those children shall be yours. They'll be called, they will be called by the name of their, brethren's in their brother, brothers in their inheritance. We have no record that Joseph had any more children. But Jacob said, if you have others, those are yours. I get these two. But for godly purposes. But as for me, when I came from Padan, uh, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And so it's really very, very beautiful. It appears that one of the reasons that Jacob, or, yeah, Jacob is giving this kind of prominence to these two boys also is because they are the grandsons of his beloved Rachel. And uh, we don't know that Jacob has taken the time in the 17 years that he's been in Egypt to pull Joseph aside and speak to him about the death of his mother. We don't know how, how much they talked about this kind of thing or whether Jacob would talk about that at all. But now he speaks to Joseph and says, let me tell you a little bit about the death of your mother, what happened and, and where it was that she was buried. So there is this somehow the, in his mind in adopting the two boys in this way is, is an honoring of Rachel and all of it. And then, jo, uh, then Israel saw Joseph's boy, boys, and he said, Who are these? So he's been talking about the boys, and they're standing right there. Uh, why? Um, we're going to see it down here in verse 10. His eyes were really dim with age. He just couldn't see them. And sometimes people say, Boy, you know, I hate these glasses. They're such a nuisance and everything. And I hate the thing. Be thankful for glasses. <laughs> Be thankful for cataract surgery and all. I mean, it's no fun to ha get old and have these things happen uh, to you and uh, different things. But um, uh, wow! I mean, what's the alternative? I mean, he he couldn't see on on things. Joseph said to his father, "They are my sons, whom God has given me in this place." And and J Jacob said, "Please bring them to me, and I'll bless them." Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he couldn't see. And then Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I didn't think I'd ever see your face again, but I've seen your face again, and now God has shown me your sons. I mean, he just says, I can't believe it. I never thought it would ever happen. I, I'm so blessed. He's just overwhelmed. And, and, uh, and, the, and all about the family, isn't it? You know, I, you know I, well, I won't go there. So Joseph brought them from between his knees, so they're over by the side of him, and then he bowed down with his face to the earth. And so Joseph takes the boys, he comes himself, he bows down before um, Jacob in order that Jacob would bless them. Now, Jacob knows that his dad is uh, almost completely blind. So he puts Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh is the oldest, and so the right hand of Jacob ought to go on Ephraim's head, or, or Manasseh's head. And Ephraim's the youngest, so the left hand should go on there. So he knows Dad's probably not going to get this all figured out very well and everything. So he just puts them right there in an obvious place. All Dad has to do is just put out his hands, just like this. Dad, just like this. Just like this, and you'll get it right. God, I'm, it's all set up for you. And, uh, and, he, and he arranges the whole thing uh, just like, uh, like that. And then Israel stretched out his hand, right hand, and he laid it on Ephraim's head. He says, you'll switcheroo. 
He just crosses his arms just like this, and he puts his right hand on the younger, on Ephraim's head, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly. He knew what he was doing, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, and he said, God before uh, whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, he praises God as his provider, as his shepherd. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, he praises God as his savior, as his uh, protector. And bless the lads. Uh, this is the God I'm asking to bless the lads. And let my name be a, named upon them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so he prays uh, uh, that they would uh, be very, very fruitful and that they would, they would multiply, that their tribes would grow into uh, a multitude. Now it's interesting, you look at Jacob's life, all that he went through, you just think about it, think back, and it's hard, it gives you a headache. All that guy was through, and, and went through and walking with God and the faith and the hip out of joint and the, oh my, and everything. And, but it's what he does right here that lands him in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And the blessing of these two boys on, on, as he's near death, that lands him in the book of Hebrews. That's what the Holy Spirit chooses as, as an evidence of his faith. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. What's the big deal? Why, what's the big deal that he's doing here in the eyes of the Holy Spirit? Because when he does this, he, it, it speaks of his confidence that God's plan for the whole world through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the salvation of the whole world is going to continue after my death. God's plan never ends with the death of, of a man. And, and so that faith and that confidence. Now Joseph, he, he, I mean, here he is, his, his, his dad's doing the blessing and everybody's probably got their eyes closed the way they should except the baby dedications and uh, during prayer. And uh, so he notices that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim. He's got it backwards. I've got it all right. And, and it displeased him. He's really upset over this. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head. He's going to for force the thing around onto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, and he, and he kind of correcting him here verbally, which wasn't easy for him, him to do as love for his father. He said, not, no, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on, on his uh, head. And, and Jacob refuses. It's not a mistake, Joseph. I know what I'm doing here. I really do. I'm 137, but I know what I'm doing. I know, my son. I know. And he also, Manasseh, he's going to become a, a people. And he also will be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And it's interesting that just as uh, Jacob prophesied here, both of those tribes, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, became great tribes in the history uh, of, of the nation of Israel. Very, very important. But Ephraim did become more important than, than Manasseh. Some of the key leaders that came out of the tribe of Ephraim, Joshua, uh, the prophet Samuel, uh, the infamous, so it wasn't all blue bloods, you know, the, the Jeroboam, who, who led the northern kingdom of Israel into uh, 
uh, into idolatry and all. But Ephraim would become so prominent that it would become the uh, most influential tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel. And in fact, there are places in the Old Testament where the northern kingdom of Israel is referred to as Ephraim. That was the kind of influence that Ephraim was one day uh, going to have. And so Jacob recognized that by the Spirit of God, pronounced it here in the blessing. And so he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will bless, saying, Make, may God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. So, so often when you hear them referred to, in this, uh, somebody referred to them or referred in the Scripture, they're almost always referred to as Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh, not Manasseh and Ephraim. The birth order would have it be Manasseh and Ephraim, but it follows the blessing of Jacob here. And then Israel said to Joseph, uh, Behold, I am dying... But God, you circle those five words in your mind. I am dying, but God. Now you tell me, how rich is the man or the woman who can on their deathbed speak to their survivors and say, I am dying, I'm going to leave. But the God that I have served all of my life is going to remain in all of His power and all of His wisdom and all for you to turn to and all. What a beautiful thing to be able to say to your children and grandchildren and then what a beautiful thing to have anchor your own heart as you're moving on uh, into eternity. I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Now remember, Joseph has not had any kind of revelation from God. God hasn't appeared and spoken to him like he has to his father Jacob and, and said to him, listen, I'm giving you Canaan, the land will be yours and all. He spoke that to Jacob, but not to Joseph. So Jacob now tells Joseph, you are going to inherit the land. God is going to bring you back to Canaan. He's passing on the promises of God to Joseph. And moreover, I have given you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Chapter 49. And then Jacob called his uh, sons together, and he said, uh, called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So now he's going to, he's on, he's on his deathbed, literally on his deathbed. These are the final moments of his life. Calls all the boys together, and now he's going to prophesy over them by the Spirit of God. These are the final words of a dad to his, his sons. And we're told here um, in, the, in verse 1 that what he speaks over them is, is a prophecy. He is speaking uh, uh, to them of what's going to come in the future. But then when we get down to, to verse 28, it also declares that what he is wanting to accomplish in this uh, prophesying over them is that it would be a blessing to them. However, uh, some of the things that he says are a, a little difficult. You know, when you... you might want they, they were hard he he played there's some hardball in this thing and uh so it was a blessing you say some of the things he's going to say to some of these boys are going to be really really hard for them to hear but uh it, even if i hear something 
from God that is hard for me to hear and, and, and all and assimilate. I might want a little kind of a different message in all. It, it, even a warning is a blessing when it comes from God. And, and I'm humble enough to accept that warning and, and, and fix my life and, and make decisions in my life in the light of that. He begins with Reuben. He said, Reuben, you are my firstborn my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. And basically what he's saying is, you're my first boy. I mean, the greatest of my procreative power went into you, how they viewed things in the ancient uh, world. You're the, you were the firstborn, so you had the birthright. You had the blessing, son. You had, it was all just out there for you. It was just given to you to succeed. All you, it, the, there, You know, you had every opportunity in the world to do something great in your own history and for the history of God's people. You had had opportunities and, and privileges nobody else had. But he said, unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed when you defiled it, and he went up to my couch. And so here he says you've had all of these advantages. He says, speaks concerning his future there in verse 4. You will not excel. And the reason he said that you won't excel is that you're unstable as water. His sin of going into his father's concubine. Now you would never do that today, but you would really, really never do it in that day. That was one of his father's four wives and he went in and he slept with her. Now some people think that he was trying to do like a power play to take over the head of the family and, and become the leader in the family. He didn't need to do that. He already had the birthright. He already had the blessings. There's no need for that. Clearly Jacob is, is make, uh, making it clear here on this. It's a character flaw in his son. It's a character flaw that caused him to, to do this. And, and that sin that he did uh, was, it just revealed his, his lack of, of, uh, of character. So, uh, uh, <clears throat> so here he's this great potential, great heritage, all this kind of thing, but he became as unstable as water, never excelled because he um, didn't keep his sexual desires in check and it cost him everything, all of the privileges is the firstborn son. That's interesting, isn't it? And, and it's a good thing to have it kind of re- hit in your mind. It's one of the first things when I read the Bible, first as a new Christian, I think about Jake, uh, think about Reuben, and I, and I always want to think about him. For some reason, the Lord gave life to that, you know, on the thing, unstable as water, unstable as water, unstable as water, is, is kind of a warning on, on things. So you can kind of remember these different characters in the Bible with a sentence. Interesting thing about uh, water is water follows its own will. Uh, another characteristic about water is it always goes, it, it gravitates to the lowest point. It won't stop going lo- lower and lower until it reaches the lowest point that it can go. And that's what Reuben did morally. He allowed the sinful desire of his flesh, his lust, to run wherever it wanted, just like water. He didn't control it, and it led him down into a low and a sinful uh, place. 
And, and Jacob recognized about his son that this was more than just a one-time kind of thing uh, w- with him and all, that he had to blow through so many stop signs culturally, family-wise, respect for his father, all of these things, that it represented a serious character flaw uh, in, in his life. And so he said, you shall not excel, and uh, no one who does not control uh, those appetites will ever excel for the kingdom of, of God. Uh, it's interesting, and, uh, and, and I do want to bring it out, because, uh, though we're trying to move quickly here on things. Let me read a passage to you in this vein from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, But do you not know uh, that the, those who run in a race, they all run, but one receives the prize? He said, Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable and eternal crown. He said, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. And thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I beat my body. I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself shall become a castaway or disqualified. I think that sometimes the life that the Apostle Paul lived by the Spirit of God, we look at this incredible life, the discipline, the, the, the focus, the, all these things. We just say, well, it was just natural. It was just the way that he was. He's just a type A driven and, and, and all and, and super disciplined and, and everything. And, and these are things that he just, just kind of... And Paul comes in and says, that's not how it worked for me. I had to beat my body like everybody else to keep these appetites from coming in and pulling me away from God's call on my life just like everybody else so that I could finish my ministry and my call in, in, in that way. And, and Reuben didn't do it. Reuben didn't do it. And it's important that, that we do, do that. Now Simeon and Levi, they were our brothers and uh, uh, Jacob says, instruments of cruelty in the, are in their dwelling place. And let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-pity, or their self-will rather, they hamstrung an ox. And cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So as he uh, speaks of the uh, lack of sexual self-control in Reuben, now he rebukes the wrath and the anger of Simeon and of, of Levi. And that incident came from earlier in Genesis, remember, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, uh, in the city of Shechem, raped their sister Dinah, and they went in and, and used the guise of uh, the deceit of circumcision to put the men of the city in kind of a weakened state. The third day they went in, and they weren't content with simply killing Shechem, the one who had committed the rape, but they killed his father and they killed every man in the village. Cold-blooded murder. And when Jacob rebuked them for it, what have you done? You've made our name to stink in the land. 
And they said, he rebuked our, uh, he, he raped our sister. Wasn't he deserving of it? Maybe he, he was, but you don't kill everybody in the whole city over it. And, and that's what they did. And, and Jacob, at that time, he didn't rebuke them, but he rebukes them now on, on the deathbed. And, and he, uh, uh, exposes the sin of their anchor and he distances himself from it. And in the record, he says, I, that never came from me. I never endorsed it. It was wrong and it was terrible. And he said, as a result of all of that, uh, these two tribes, Simeon and Levi, the end of verse 7, they're going to be scattered in Israel. It's interesting, when they went in under Joshua to take the land of, of Israel, uh, of Canaan now, to make it the land of Israel, Simeon ends up becoming like a sub-tribe in the tribe of Judah. They're assimilated by another tribe. They're scattered. They virtually disappear. Levi, talk about how gracious God is. Uh, Levi becomes the priestly tribe. But what, what does God do with the priestly tribe? He doesn't give them a section of the land of Israel. He gives them 48 cities spread all around the land of Israel. So that their, at this point, their spiritual influence wouldn't be concentrated in one place but throughout the land. But all of it a fulfillment of what uh, Jacob prophesies here. Both of them are going to be scattered in Israel. And I think the idea is they exercise such wrath, such anger, such cold-blooded, uh, cold-bloodedness in their wrath and in their anger that they, their influence needed to be scattered all around through the land so that it wouldn't be concentrated and become an influence for, for bad in, in some part of the land. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Judah means praise. And so uh, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, speaking of the fact that they will be victorious over their enemies. Your father's children shall uh, bow down to you. In other words, he's saying that Judah now is going to become the preeminent pri- uh, 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 tribe uh, or brother uh, among the twelve. You would think it would be Joseph, but it's not going to be that. It's going to be uh, Judah. Judah is going to the, become uh, uh, preeminent. And he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From uh, the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down like a lion. And as a lion, who can rouse him? And then he says, so in verse uh, 9, you can circle that a lion in, in your mind. What was it? What's a lion? Ah, the king of the jungle. It's because of a king, doesn't it? Majesty. And then in verse 10, the scepter, what is a scepter? It's the rod that a king holds when he's, when he's issuing decrees on his throne, when he is acting in the authority of a king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver. Who is a lawgiver in the ancient, ancient times? The king. Was it, a lawgiver was the one who had the power to just by decree establish law. Nor a lawgiver uh, shall not depart from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And what uh, Jacob is basically prophesying here is that Judah is going to supply the nation of Israel with their kings. And it's interesting that David was a, a member of the tribe of Judah. And he became the greatest king in the history of Israel 
and then all of these other kings came through his, his bloodline. But the single greatest king that Judah would provide for the world, not only for Israel, but the whole world, is spoken of there at the, at the end of verse 10 when he speaks about, Judah, you're going to provide Israel with, with kings and with lawgivers until Shiloh comes. Shiloh, to both Jews and Christians in their interpretation of the passage, it refers to Messiah. So you're going to, you're going to supply human kings until Shiloh comes uh, and, and you're going to supply then the nation with with her Messiah King and to him shall be the obedience of the people and so Jesus was born into the world of the tribe of you'd think it would be Levi the priestly tribe but it wasn't it was through Judah Jacob had prophesied that the Messiah is going to come into the world through the tribe of Judah now he speaks of the beauty of the, the millennial reign or the reign of, of Shiloh when he rules over Israel. We know it will happen in the kingdom age. He said, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the uh, choice vine. And so he's saying that uh, things are going to be so plentiful during the kingdom age that, um, that uh, uh, where you would never take and, and tie a donkey to a grapevine because you would harm the grapevine. They were too valuable to use that way. There'll be so many grapes, so much fruit, so much of this that you can even use it to tie your donkeys there. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. There'll be so much uh, fruit of the vine in, in all during that time. You can use it to wash your clothes and his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk and so during that kingdom age just supernatural health and we're told Isaiah says that if a person dies at a hundred years old during that thousand year reign it'll be like they died as a child it'll be a completely different thing in terms of, of health and uh, 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 dental work here I mean his teeth will be whiter than milk so no uh, you know uh, fillings or those kinds of things Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea he shall be uh, become a haven four ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon and so later on when they come into the land Zebulun got a section of the land up in the north towards Sidon toward Lebanon and even though they didn't weren't right on the Mediterranean Sea the property that they the land that they had was between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee and they benefited from the trade that went back and forth Issachar is a strong donkey thanks dad <laughs> lying down between two burdens and he saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and uh, became a band of slaves and so uh, Issachar was uh, up in the north also and uh, very very hard working tribe the land that was given to them was very very rich agricultural land they worked hard because they worked hard hard work plus rich land you're going to prosper the problem is is that that then attracts marauders and uh, robbers and uh, in invasion and that kind of thing and and that became something they had to deal with constantly being attacked and enslaved by others Dan which means judge Dan was intended by God to be a judge in influence for God uh, to judge unrighteousness and these things among his people Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel but Dan 
shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels and uh, so that its rider shall fall backwards. And so Dan was intended to be an influence for God as a judge of God uh, among the nation of Israel, but they were the tribe that introduced idolatry into the nation of Israel. And, uh, and, and then what they did is they kind of caused Israel to fall as a result of it in the same way that a horseman would fall off of, of a horse. And, and so in verse 18, when, when Jacob is prophesying, he kind of interrupts here and, uh, you know, knowing that uh, the land uh, that the children of Israel are going to be drawn into idolatry, that this difficulty is going to awake. He infuses hope here by saying, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And so when things are a mess because of what Dan does in the history of Israel, Jacob wants them to realize it won't be the end of the story. Gad, uh, a troop, and that's what Gad means as a troop. A troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. One of the things that Gad did uh, was Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, when they settled into the promised land, they didn't want to go all the way into the promised land. They wanted to stay on the Jordan, the east side of the Jordan, uh, in what is modern-day Jordan today. And because they didn't settle right into the land of Israel, when the invading armies would come in and invade Israel, they would constantly be the two-and-a-half tribes that would be hit first. And uh, so here, prophesying of, of what did come to pass, uh, they were constantly uh, in a battle, but they triumphed at last. Bread from Asher, Asher means happy, and uh, uh, they, uh, the bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. And so Asher, again, a very, very prosperous part of the land, went to them. They became very, very good at working grain, not only making good bread, but probably some pastries and stuff like that, and uh, those kinds of things. And, and they became so good at it, you notice it says, and he shall yield royal dainties. In other words, they learned how to make uh, bread and, and pastries and all that were fit for a king. Well, listen, not everybody can... Uh, you know, fight a battle. You've got to have somebody that can make a good Danish. And uh, that, that kind of thing. And, and so then Naphtali is a deer let loose. Naphtali ended up settling in what we know as the Golan Heights in the north. And, uh, and, and so a great love for the outdoors, the hilly regions and, and mountainous regions, all that, but also a great love for literature. And if you read later on in Judges, uh, the great uh, uh, prophecy and, and song that is sung by Barak and Deborah as, as members of the tribe of Naphtali, you get a sense for it. They loved the outdoors, they loved education and learning. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the walls. So J Jacob is saying he's going to just prosper like crazy. Jacob acknowledges the difficulty that his um, brothers have been to him. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him, but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Uh, from there is the shepherd of the stone, uh, shepherd the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you. And he acknowledges 
what his brothers did against him, but that God would not let that prosper. And God overworked uh, it uh, and overruled it for good. With blessings, he speaks about the fact kind of to Joseph, you had it tough earlier in life, and now God is going to bless you later in life. And here's how he's going to bless you. With blessings from heaven above, talking about rain coming uh, in, in its due season for the crops and uh, blessings of the deep that lies beneath. He's, he's going to have the blessings of spring waters and, and uh, water sources, very valuable in that part of the world. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. And so they'll have abundant and offspring. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Somewhere in this whole uh, chronology, we don't know when it happened because it's not recorded for us. Somewhere along the line, the brothers had to tell Jacob what they did. We sold them, we did this, that whole thing of bringing his jacket back, all shredded up with blood on it, animal blood and everything. That, that was a whole thing to fool you and all. So somehow in the course of the history, Jacob does, uh, does hear about all of, uh, of that. Benjamin, so Benjamin, imagine, put yourself in the place of those that are there. Wow, what's he going to say about me? Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall devour the spoil. And that's what Benjamin became. A very, very violent, very cruel, a very, very efficient and strong uh, group of uh, uh, military kind of, of people. But they, they didn't have good character always uh, associated with that. Um, uh, Saul, who was to become the Apostle Paul, was a Benjamite. Uh, king Saul, the first king of Israel, was a Benjamite, come from that tribe. But they're going to cause a lot of problems in the history of, uh, of, uh, of Israel because of their, their violence and their ungodly um, uh, direction that they would go in. But then when you tried to reel them in and, and humble them, boy, they sure could fight you and kill a lot of you. Uh, before you could humble them. And all these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. And then he charged them and said to them, I will be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, uh, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham, uh, his uh, grandfather, bought the, with the field of Ephron, the uh, Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. And he bought it there for 400 pieces of silver. He said, I want to be buried there where they buried not only Abraham, but Sarah his wife, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons these things, this is where I want to be buried and all, he drew uh, his feet up. He's, he's sitting at the edge of a bed, got his feet down, draws his feet up into the bed, takes another breath, and goes home to his family. That's a pretty good way to go at 137, you know, and uh, 147 rather, in terms of age 147. There is a better way to go. Boom! Trump! And just out of here and all. But 
second to that. And Joseph, in, in response to his father's death, he falls, he fell on his father's face, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. Remember, he's been robbed of 22 years with his father. Now his father's gone. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. They mummified him. Forty days were required for him, for such were the days required for those who were embalmed. Now today, uh, uh, Jewish people, they, they, you're buried the day you die. As simple as that. Now Muslims do that too. You're buried the day that you die. And, uh, but here, Joseph, and the reason that they, uh, that, that they believe that is out of Genesis. We came from the dirt. We're going to go back to the dirt. And you shouldn't do anything to the body that would disturb that. So mummification would do that. So they weren't into this whole embalming thing at all. And uh, they were also against uh, a cremation, though there's freedom to engage in either one uh, as, as a child of God. This was their tradition on, on things. And so, but it's going to be a period of time before Joseph, uh, Joseph can take his father on the long journey back into Canaan, and they've got to prepare the body in some way to do that. So he allows for his uh, mummification. And, uh, and so, in this way, Jacob at this moment became both father and mummy. Uh, to... All right, I'm, I'm at an hour. I've got to do something. Just got a little bit more to go. It's a little Old Testament humor. What do you want? Did you get charged for coming in here tonight? And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Now, they would mourn 72 days for the death of a Pharaoh. So this is considerable respect being shown to him out of respect for Joseph. Now, when the days of his mourning were over, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that Jacob, uh, Joseph, he no longer has direct access to Pharaoh. So his whole thing of helping them get through that crisis and everything, things start to change. You know what it's like in the business world, what have you done for me lately, kind of a thing. Now he doesn't have that access anymore. He's got to access Pharaoh now through his, uh, his family. So he said, go to him and please say to Pharaoh, my father made me swear, saying, behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, and there you shall bury me, and now therefore please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he has made you swear. Joseph now is re-entering the land of Canaan, hasn't been there for 39 years. 39 years, and now he goes back to bury his father. And so Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, all the elders of the land of Egypt. I mean, pomp and circumstance and royalty and, wow, uh, camels and elephants. And I mean, you just can imagine, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. And then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. And this lamentation went on for seven days there in Canaan. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw this level of mourning 
at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians, therefore its name is called uh, Abel Matsarim, which means the mourning of Egypt, which is beyond the Jordan. And so his sons did for him just as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which uh, Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had returned, his father uh, buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went, with, uh, went up with him to bury their father. And when they come back, the brothers are thinking, all right, Joseph's been laying low for 17 years waiting for dad to die. Now that dad is, is dead, surely he's still angry over what we did to him and now he's, he's going to kill us and, and take it out on us. So that, that they're, they're fearing revenge now in this change of circumstance. So the brothers, they saw their father is dead. They said perhaps Joseph will hate us and he'll repay, actually repay us for all the evil that we did to him. Now notice they see it as evil. That's a good a good thing in, in how God has changed their life. And so they sent messengers to Joseph. This is the kind of scheme they came up with. They said, listen, go to him, and this is what you should say that Dad said. Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin. For they did evil to you, and now please, therefore, uh, now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. So they, they put this lie out there. God isn't into this. He just records the fact that they did it. They're still trying to scheme and manipulate. And when Joseph heard them say this, he broke down in tears. It broke his heart that for 17 years they did not accept the fact that he had forgiven them when he had forgiven them. Listen, when somebody forgives you, you have as, they have a responsibility to forgive you as a child of God. And you have a responsibility to accept that forgiveness. What a waste of 17 years here on this. And it just breaks his heart. Because that, that, his heart is one of love toward his, his brothers. And then his brothers also went. They fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph doesn't want any servants. He wants brothers. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? He's saying, Vengeance isn't mine. That belongs only to God. Now that's an Old Testament and a New Testament truth, isn't it? He said, but as for you, you meant evil against me. I'm not going to minimize the fact that you meant evil toward me way back uh, when on things. Uh, but God, and those are two great words to circle, but God meant it for good. And then here's the good, that I'd have an easy life, buy a lazy boy sofa, and eat uh, chocolate bonbons and uh, watch sporting events for the rest of my life. That's not how God defines good. Good is to be involved. The greatest good that you can do to somebody who's serious about the things of the Lord is for God to put them in a place where they can influence the world for the kingdom of God and to bless other people in the name of God. And that's a mature view of good and what is a true riches in life. 
And, and Joseph holds that. But God meant it for good, and here's the good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. He said, I don't feel bad about it. You did all that wrong to me, but look at the life that I've had. I saved two whole nations and an entire region of the world from starvation and influenced it for God. For, for God. It's, it's, it's really okay. It's really good. But the only way he can, he can see it that way is to see it that way, is to, is to see it in terms of what God was doing, how God was using him, how many people were being impacted through God's use of him. If it was just, boy, they sure did me wrong, boy, they sure did me wrong, boy, they sure did me wrong, without seeing how God used all those circumstances to get him into a place to then do something great with his life, that, that's where the light went on and he's able to leave the bitterness and move uh, move forward and so it is for us and now therefore don't be afraid I will provide I'm not only am I not going to kill you I'll provide for you and your little ones and he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them and so Joseph dwelt in Egypt and he and his father's household and Joseph lived 110 years so the ages keep kind of creeping down after the the flood and all and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation saw his great great grandchildren through Ephraim the children of Machir the son of Manasseh were also brought up on Joseph's knees he saw Manasseh's descendants to his great grandchildren and Joseph said to his brethren I'm dying now at the end of his life but God, God's work always outlives his servants. I am dying, but God will surely visit you. Just like his dad told him, he now passes it on to them. God's going to visit you, bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to take you into Canaan. And then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones from here. Now, this... It, now we have an idea with quite a few years separated uh, from the whole famine thing and Joseph being used by God in that situation and all. Now he doesn't even have the, the kind... A new generation has risen up, probably a couple of generations. Nobody really remembers the great thing that he did or it's kind of old news and all. So he can't even go to Pharaoh. They can't and say, can we take his bones into, uh, into Canaan? He said, forget about it. Just take me out of here when you clear out uh, in, during the Exodus. And so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. And so ends the story of Joseph. What a life. Amazing, isn't it? Huh? Wasn't it? Huh? Who are you? Do you know who you are? Okay. On that. By the way, little, uh, what did, uh, what did um, one casket say to another? Is that you, Coffin? <laughs> so it's another little, little Genesis humor on things as we're getting out of here and things. That's the kind of stuff I like. I like that kind of stuff. I don't like all these big, talented jokes. They just take too much time, get to the point on things. But you think about the life of Joseph. Isn't it really tremendous? And then one other thing. Think about where we've been in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and I mean Noah and, and, and all the way through what we've, we've been through in, in this. Just tremendous time in the book. And now we move into Exodus, Lord willing, next week. Let's get you out of those chairs. Stand up. And have the worship team come forward and we'll get them to close us up tonight.